life that is worth living. People seek to enjoy a life that they feel is worth living. And tragically, many times when people are unable to achieve the good life or a life that they believe is worth living, they take their own lives. And as we know all too well, they take the lives of others before they take their own lives. Tragedy beyond description. Life is sacred. And one's perception of the good life will certainly determine whether or not he believes that or she believes that life is, is worth living. Because if one's definition of the good life is skewed, if it's uh, not as it should be, and then one fails to achieve the truly good life, if one believes the good life is making money, then when that is not achieved, it can lead to tragedy. The great stock market crash of 29 is evidence of how some who believe they had lost the good life because they'd lost their material possessions saw no reason to continue to live. They took their own lives. The good life. How is the good life defined? Well, I know how modern living might be defined, and a good definition or description of modern living has been given in this way, quote, a senseless whirl, which has been spelled in three words, hurry, worry, bury. Hurry and worry and then bury. Now that's a, that's a sad commentary on life, isn't it? Uh, a hurried life, a life filled with worry and then bury. Death that comes. But someone else has written, he truly lives who has a work he can respect, who has found a cause he would die for, who has a faith that supports him in the days of difficulty, who has great causes to live for regardless of what he has to live on, who has great ideas to keep him company in lonely hours. Tonight I'd like for us to consider from Scripture five essentials for a life that is worth living. Five essentials for a life worth living. The first is this. We must have a self fit to live with. We must have a self fit to live with. Someone wrote this uh, poem under the title, Myself, I think it contains some excellent thoughts. He wrote, or she perhaps, I have to live with myself and so I want to be fit for myself to know. I want to be able, as days go by, always to look myself in the eye. I don't want to stand with the setting sun and hate myself for the things I've done. I want to go out with my head erect. I want to deserve all men's respect. But here in the struggle for fame and wealth, I want to be able to like myself. I don't want to look at myself and know that I am a bluster and bluff and empty show. I can never hide myself from me. I see what others may never see. I know what others may never know. I can never fool myself. And so, whatever happens, 
I want to be self-respecting and conscience-free. Let me suggest there's only one way to achieve that, and that is by basing my life upon scriptural guidelines. We must have a self fit to live with. And when I go to scripture, I understand that in order to have a self fit to live with, I've got to guard my thoughts. I've got to gird up the loins of my mind, as Peter put it in 1 Peter 1, 13. Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind. Be strong and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Guarding our thoughts, girding up the loins of our mind. That will help us to have a self fit to live with. Something else that will help us to have a self that's fit to live with is to not grieve over the talents that we don't have, but to use fully and faithfully the talents we do have. That great parable of the talents in Matthew 25, beginning at verse 14 through verse 30, reminds us that we are different and that there are talents that some have that others do not have. That I may be a one-talent person, I may be a five-talent person, I may be a two-talent person, but my responsibility is not to grieve over what talents I do not have, but to use what I have fully. We have to make peace with our limitations, in other words. When I say we have to make peace with our limitations, I don't mean that we're self-satisfied in limiting ourselves and not giving it our all to develop the talents that we are capable of developing and making sure that we are fully serving as we should. But even with that best effort, we have limitations. And we have to be at peace with our limitations. By the same token, we should not be jealous of the talents of others. In Galatians 5, 19 through 21, in that list of grievous sins, jealousy is right there in the middle of them. And so we shouldn't grieve over the talents we don't have, nor should we be jealous of the talents that others do have. There's a great text in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 along these lines, beginning at verse 12, reminding us of the importance of every single one of us, especially as it relates to our, our place in the body of Christ and our importance to the body of Christ. Regardless of the number of talents or the kind of talent we have, if we use them as we should, if we're not jealous over the talents of others, we ought to understand that the body, as Paul wrote here, is one, but it has many members. But all the members of that one body being many are one body so also in Christ. He goes on to talk about that by the Spirit we were all baptized into one body, verse 13. Whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, have all been made to drink into one Spirit. For in fact the body is not one member but many. And then, and then he reminds us if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I'm not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? If the whole body were an eye, where would be the hearing? If the whole were hearing, where would be the smelling? But now, God has set the members, each one of them in the body, just as he pleased. And if they were all one member, where would the body be? But now indeed there are many members, yet one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. 
nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. No, much rather those members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. He goes on pointing out the importance of every member of the body. Every single talent that we possess is to be used. If we're one talent people, we use that one talent. We seek to develop more talents. But we're important to the body. And we work together as a body, just as the human body functions in harmony and works together. Something else about having a self fit to live with is the ability to laugh at yourself at times. Now, don't laugh at, uh, at the sinful in your sinfulness of yourself, but laugh at the silliness sometimes in yourself. You can laugh at the silliness, but not at the sinfulness. Don't take yourself too seriously. Laugh at yourself. And realize also that the world will go on without you. It's going to go on without all of us, isn't it, unless the Lord comes again. I like this statement, I do not know its origin, a man can stand a lot as long as he can stand himself. A man can stand a lot as long as he can stand himself. One of the essentials for a life worth living is to have a self fit to live with. But a second essential to a life worth living is to have a faith fit to live by. And 2 Corinthians 5, 7 reminds us that we walk by faith and not by sight. And that's true in every aspect of life. It's been said, bury your faith and your life will be a cemetery. And there's no question about that. The one who has buried his faith is living in a cemetery. He's dead while he lives. If he lives a faithless life, how sad, how tragic. But our faith must be in God. And that faith must be based upon the Word of God. Romans 10, 17, as we well know, that passage says, So then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. I was so frustrated the other morning. I was watching Fox and Friends, and uh, Gretchen Carlson ha was interviewing John Stossel as he was going to be previewing on their program, the program that I mentioned, I think, earlier today, that he was going to have on his uh, program with these atheists and defenders supposedly of Christianity who didn't do a great job of defending, as I mentioned earlier. But she was trying to convince, she relished the idea of being able to talk to John Stossel about trying to uh, convince him that he needed to believe in God. And at one point in their brief conversation, he said, well, I just need evidence. I just, I need a re I need reason. I need something reasonable. I need to... I need to have evidence. And boy, she really jumped on that one. She said, well, that's where faith comes in. And that's where my frustration came in. <laughs> I thought, you know, here's a man who opens the door and says, I need evidence. And what she offers him is, well, that's where faith comes in. You just have to accept by faith. Well, tragically, I'm afraid that her definition of faith is not uh, an isolated definition, I'm afraid, that in uh, a great many people's minds, that is what faith is to them. A leap in the dark, in effect. That's not going to convince John Stossel there's a God. That's not going to convince anyone there's a God. When you respond to his request for evidence by saying, well, that's just where faith comes in. You just got to believe. You just got to believe. 
Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. There is evidence. And to the objective mind, that evidence will be compelling and convincing and lead to conviction. Faith. A faith fit to live by is a faith in God that's based upon the Word of God. And it's a faith that works at all times, motivated by love. I have often said that Galatians 5, 6, I believe, is the greatest summary statement anywhere in Scripture of what we are to be. In Christ Jesus, Paul wrote there, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith, but faith which works through love. Motivated by love. That's the motivation, love, that causes our faith to do what? Work. And that's a summary of the Christian existence. A Christian is someone whose love motivates him to work based upon a solid faith. A faith fit to live by. And so, we must have a self fit to live with. Secondly, we must have a faith fit to live by. Thirdly, we must have a purpose fit to live for. We need purpose. And I believe, too, that gets back to some of the tragic events that we see that happen because people have absolutely no purpose for living as they believe. A rich man said, I have everything to live with and nothing to live for. There's a vast difference in having everything to live with and having something to live for. We must have a purpose fit to live for. Remember Solomon's conclusion? He had tried it all, hadn't he? He had experienced everything. He had tried everything. Wine, women, and song, we might say. He had gone the whole route. He had run the gamut, and his conclusion was, hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole of man. Literally, the passage says, beauty is added there, but it's, it's literally, this is the whole of man. This is what man is. This is his whole being. This is his whole purpose for existing, is to fear God and keep his commandments. We're to do all to the glory of God. That's what Paul reminds us of in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31. He says, Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Jesus, during his last hours, as he prayed to the Father in John 17, he prayed this, I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you gave me to do. I've glorified you on the earth. In John 21, remember that exchange that Jesus had with Peter after Peter's denial of him three times and the question was asked three times of the Lord, Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And then in verses 18 and 19 in that same context, we find these words. Jesus says to Peter, most assuredly I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself and Walked where you wished, but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. And then John comments by inspiration, verse 19, This he spoke, signifying by what death he, that is Peter, would glorify 
God. And then interestingly, when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. That took some faith, didn't it, to hear those words. Peter, when you were younger, you could go where you wanted to. When you're older, that's not going to be the case. You're going to die for me. That's what he told him, and Peter understood that because later he makes a reference to this very exchange, saying, I remember that in effect. You're going to die for me, now follow me. Took pretty strong faith following those three denials. That, restore, that uh, restoration of his faith was certainly there, wasn't it? But the point is, his death would what? Glorify God. This he spake signifying by what death he would what? Glorify God. And I've mentioned before that our death must glorify God. Not, not because we, uh, we die some martyr's death as Peter uh, did. That's not the only kind of death, in other words, that glorifies God. Your death can glorify God. My death can glorify God. In fact, my death and your death, they must glorify God if we're going to go to heaven one day. But all that means is that we die as faithful children of God. That'll glorify God. And so the point is we glorify God in life and we glorify God in death because that's our purpose here on this earth is to glorify God. Our whole purpose is to glorify God. And for the most part, most people miss that completely. And they will go to their graves never having understood their whole purpose for living because they will have rejected, for the most part, the opportunity to bring their lives into harmony with the will of God, thus glorifying Him in so doing, and then living thereafter in a way to glorify Him until they die. But most will never do it. Most will never do it. Some will believe, and many do believe, they have brought their lives into harmony with the, with the will of God and that they are now living their lives glorifying God, but they are not. What a tragedy also. And why are they not glorifying God despite the fact that they believe they are? Because whatever you do, in word or deed, in Colossians 3.17, Paul says, do all in the name of the Lord. That is, by His authority. Whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. Whatever you do, do it by the name of the Lord. Put those two passages together, Colossians 3.17 and 1 Corinthians 10.31, and what do you have? In order for all that you do to glorify God, all that you do must be in the name of the Lord, which means by His authority. Therefore, I can't glorify God by doing anything except what is authorized in His Word. And so saying that I'm glorifying God is not sufficient. I must make sure that the glory I'm bringing to God is based upon my having brought my life into harmony with the will of God and keeping it in His will. In Romans 1.14, Paul said, I am debtor both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, so as much as in me is, I'm ready to preach the gospel to you, also who are in Rome. Speaking of his responsibility that he understood to preach the gospel, that was his purpose, glorifying God by taking the gospel to others. And he said, I am debtor. What about us? 
Are we any different? And are we paying our debts? Are we paying our debts? You say, oh, I pay my bills. I hope so. But what about our indebtedness to the one who has made our salvation possible? I am debtor both to Greeks and barbarians, to wise and foolish. I'm debtor, Paul said. We are as well. And we must recognize as our purpose glorifying God and taking the gospel to others. Therefore, we need to pay our debts in that respect. But in the fourth place, the fourth essential for a life worth living is that we must have a company fit to live in. Not only a self that is fit to live with, not only a faith fit to live by, and not only a purpose fit to live for, but we must have a company fit to live in. 1 Corinthians 15, Do not be deceived. Be not deceived, Paul said. Evil companionships corrupt good habits. Evil company. Evil companionship. Oh, how important it is that we have a company fit to live in. Evil company, as the New King James says, corrupts good habits. Evil companionship corrupts good morals, the King James, I believe, says. So the point is we need to make sure that we're keeping company with those who are fit to be in company with, if you will. Peer pressure can be a very powerful thing, especially where our young people are concerned. But even as adults, we need to make sure that the company that we're in is the company that's going to encourage us to do what is right. doesn't mean that we can't have associations or shouldn't have associations with those who are not members of the body of Christ, but the company that we want to be in first and foremost and at every opportunity that we have to be with them is the Lord's company the Lord's people. Hebrews 10, 24, and 25 remind us of that very fact. Let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as the custom of some is, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. We need to have a company fit to live in and we need to view as precious beyond every other relationship on this earth, the relationship that we have with brothers and sisters in Christ. Treasure that relationship. Do all that we can to encourage and to lift one another up. But finally, the fifth essential for living a good life, a life that's worth living, is we must have a hope or a goal fit to look toward. Go back with me to 1 Peter 1.13, a passage we noted earlier. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, Peter said. Be strong. Rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Rest your what? Hope fully. Upon what? Upon the grace that is to be brought when? At the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, our hope is set on heaven. Our hope is set on the second coming of Christ when we will meet him in the air and ever be with the Lord. 
And so it's not so much a question of where we've been or where we are now, it's where we are going that is so important. We've got to have a purpose, a hope, fit to look, look toward. In 1 Peter 4.17, it's a part of that statement concerning salvation, what will be the end? What will be the end? If we just lift that particular question out of that verse, it is a sobering question indeed. The whole verse reads, For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of Christ? What will be the end? What will be our end? Where is our hope? What is our goal? Remember Abraham, one of those great, great figures mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11. The man who's called the father of the faithful, the friend of God in Hebrews 11, 8, beginning by faith. Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would afterward receive as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he sojourned in the land of promise, as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. Why? Verse 10 gives the answer. For he waited or looked for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Abraham had a hope fit to look toward. He looked for that city whose builder and maker is God. Someone has said, when hope is alive, when hope is alive, the night is less dark, the solitude less deep, the fear less acute. And that is true, isn't it? As we close our thoughts on these five essentials for a life worth living, I know of no better text with which to close these thoughts than the text in Philippians chapter 1. A great summary statement from Paul in verse 21. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. For to me, to live is Christ. That's the life worth living. The life that is lived in Christ. It is better to live for Christ, it has been said, than to wish you had. And you can make a good living and yet live a poor life without Christ. Where's your life? Are you living the good life as it is properly defined? In Scripture, you're not if you haven't obeyed the gospel of Christ. You're not if you haven't expressed your faith based upon the evidence that is here in Jesus to be the Christ. You're not living that good life if you have not acted upon that faith by repenting of your sins, confessing Jesus to be the Christ, and then being buried in baptism for the remission of sins. If you haven't done those things... The good life, no matter what you may accumulate in this world, no matter how many accolades you may receive, how many rewards you may be given, how much money you may make, your life is a failure unless it's a life lived in Christ. And you can be in Christ by taking those simple but absolutely essential steps, believing, repenting, confessing, and being baptized. 
And if you are no longer living that good life, the life in Christ, because you are no longer looking toward that hope that you once had, you have turned your back upon the Lord in a way to bring reproach upon the church and need to repent publicly, we plead with you to do that. But for all others who need no repentance whatsoever, never lose sight. No matter what happens around us, no matter what circumstances may change, no matter what hardships may come, the five essentials for living a good life, the good life, or the life worth living, are all found in the Word of God, summarized by the great statement of Paul, for to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If you can't say that tonight, we hope you'll respond so that you can leave here with the ability to say that with confidence as we stand to sing.